you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Freak shows were an unfortunate reality in years gone by. Here, one could gawk at malformed individuals for a price. Over time, as this became less acceptable to society at large, these were replaced by attractions which featured more willing participants who performed some sort of unusual stunt, such as sword swallowing or carrying heavy weights by hooks in their flesh or the like. But unfortunately, the freak show was often the only real source of income available to those with severe deformities. If they happened to have a more scrupulous agent, they stood to make at least a livable wage. But if they had an unscrupulous agent, which unfortunately also was the case more often than not, they were often kept in crushing poverty and were sometimes shockingly misused. This is episode 36, The Life and Death of Julia Pastrana. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Often billed as the bear woman, the baboon lady, the nondescript, particularly later in her career after she had met Theodore Lent, or, more unsparingly, as the ugliest woman in the world, not too much is actually known of the origins of Julia Pastrana. Promotional materials for her appearances say that she was one of the Native American tribes in the Sierra Madre region. The tribe is identified most often as the root diggers. However, not only is this not a proper name of a tribe, it's really merely a derogatory word used to refer to any number of Native American tribes, especially in Mexico and the southwestern United States. It's told in these materials that a Native woman named Espinoza was found living in a cave in 1836 with a two-year-old child, which she said was not hers. The area, it was said, was inhabited not by any people, but was a region of country abounding in monkeys, baboons, and bears. Baboons, of course, are not even native to Mexico. Espinoza adopted the girl anyway. She professed to love the child dearly, though she disclaimed being its parent. She named her Julia Pastrana and settled in the nearby village of Copala. The stories given to sideshow performers were often clearly fanciful. It was initially said that Fedor Jevdichiev, a.k.a. Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy, was a quote-unquote wild man found living in the woods in Russia. To be fair, he actually was Russian. And that Joseph Merrick, 
aka the Elephant Man, was a victim of maternal impression, an old theory that an unborn child's appearance could be affected by frightening or shocking experiences during a mother's pregnancy. Merrick's mother, in this case, having been reputedly badly frightened by an elephant. There are, of course, a number of native tribes in that area of Mexico. On one poster for one of her early American appearances, she's identified as an Opate Indian. The Opata were, in fact, one of the tribes native to the region, though to be fair, they were usually found a bit to the north, in Sonora. Some believe she may have been a member of a Sinaloan tribe called the Akaxi. But whatever her ethnicity, she at some point came into the home of Pedro Sanchez, a former governor from the mid-1830s. What exactly her role was here is up for debate. Some accounts say that Sanchez had brought her to his residence merely as a curiosity, where others claim that she worked as a servant in his household. She left Sanchez's employee in about April of 1854. It's unknown at this date how much, if any, of that supposed backstory, though, is actually true. Before we move on to other events in her life, a physical description of Julia Pastrana is warranted. In fact, is required to understand the reactions to her by the general public. She was a very short woman, standing only 4 feet 6 inches in height. This, technically, would qualify her as a dwarf. In addition to this, she seems to have had a degree of facial deformity as well, as it was noted that her ears were quite large, her lips thick, and her nose rather flat against the face. Moreover, as she is described in Golden Piles 1896, Anomalies and Curiosities of Medicine, Julia Pastrana had her face covered with thick hair and had a full beard and mustache. She exhibited defective dentition in both jaws, and the teeth present were arranged in an irregular fashion. She had pronounced prognathism, which gave her a simian appearance. Jan Bondison examined Pastrana's remains closely, and in his excellent book, A Cabinet of Medical Curiosities, he attempts to make a more formal diagnosis. She was, of course, afflicted with hypertrichosis, the so-called Wolfman disease. There are actually many types of this disorder. Most people are familiar with generalized hypertrichosis, in which the distribution of the excess hair is usually confined to the upper body or face. There are several other types, both genetic and acquired, but the type she was afflicted with seems likely to be the one known as congenital terminal hypertrichosis. In this type, the growth of excess hair occurs across the body as a whole. This type of hypertrichosis is often accompanied by gingival hyperplasia, another condition which causes the tissues of the gums to be swollen to various extents. In Julia's case, which Bondison feels is likely one of the most severe cases of hyperplasia ever, the gums were swollen to such an extent that her entire mouth was projected forward. She did not actually have prognathism, as was stated by Golden Pyle. Her jawbones themselves were normal. X-rays also revealed that she did not truly have defective dentition, as it was written, and she had a full and normal set of teeth. The gums were actually just swollen to such a large extent that her teeth were nearly completely hidden. The same combination of genetic disorders was present, though to a far lesser extent, in another circus performer from the early 1900s, Crow Farini. I would put forward that it may have been present in another 
performer from the 1930s and on, Priscilla Lothar Bahano, a.k.a. Priscilla the Monkey Girl. It's somewhat difficult to say for certain, but it certainly appears so, in my opinion. The description of her out of the way, then, the earliest independently verified references to her are from July 1854, at which time she was in the possession of Francisco Sepulveda. Sepulveda was a notoriously corrupt official from Mazatlan, who at some point bought an oso muher, or bear woman. He was the girl's guardian, having been, as he alleges, appointed so by her foster parents in Mexico. Another Mexican, named Miguel Reyes, was traveling along with Pastrana and Sepulveda. In several other accounts, Reyes is identified as an American. Whether her early shows in Mexico were undertaken under the patronage of Sepulveda, or whether she had been self-exhibiting for a time before taking up with him, is unclear. One of the two showmen, Sepulveda or Reyes, which one, again, is unclear, came up with the idea to tour America with her. Francisco Sepulveda, Miguel Reitz, and family boarded the Orizaba, a ship leaving Veracruz, on October 25, 1854. The ship arrived in New Orleans three days later. It was said that from New Orleans, the trio went directly to New York City, some say to meet with P.T. Barnum. Some say Barnum enters the picture later. Regardless of the truth of that, it is known that some showings were held in New York. For these, and all future showings, she essentially held music hall performances, singing and dancing in both English and Spanish. While in New York, she was examined by Dr. Alexander B. Mott, who penned a description that would be utilized in promotional materials for years to come. She is a perfect woman, a rational creature, endowed with speech, which no monster has ever possessed. She is therefore a hybrid, wherein the nature of woman predominates over the brute, the orangutan. Altogether, she is the most extraordinary being of the day. By February of 1855, she was being managed by a man named J.W. Beach, although Sepulveda was apparently still involved in her life. She seems to have taken a few months off, and then between May and November gave a number of shows across several U.S. states. Another description, quoted in the promotional brochure The Curious History of the Baboon Lady, Julia Pastrana, was that written by a Dr. Brainerd. His description, more so than Alexander's in my opinion, not only exemplifies the racism of the time, but the dehumanizing attitudes often projected on Julia. I examined the hair of the specimen of the genus Homo which you have in charge, and compared with the hair of the African, under a high magnifying power, and from this comparison, have no hesitation in saying that the individual in question possesses, by this test, no trace of Negro blood. Her other, peculi- her other peculiarities, the hair upon the body, its length and structure, the form of the mouth and nose, the size of her limbs, peculiarities of her breasts, etc., and other features, entitle her, I think, to the rank of a distinct species. Another less than generous description was written by the English author Charles Reed in his novel, novel A Terrible Temptation. That read, Bust in figure like any other lady, hands exquisite, arms neatly turned, but with long silky hair from the elbow to the wrist, face, ugh, forehead made of black leather, eyes all pupil, 
Nose and excrescence. Chin pure monkey. Briefly, a type extinct 10,000 years before Adam. This trend of dehumanization continues even now. Only a handful of years ago, the, photo, the photograph of Julia's mummified remains were used by racists as a photo of a hybrid of a black man and a chimpanzee. While preparing this episode, I found that Crow Farini mentioned earlier as possibly having a similar array of symptoms as to Julia Pastrana, is also mentioned in a similar vein. Certain websites advocate for the exhumation of Crow's remains from New York, in order that they might be tested to confirm that she was indeed human, and not some sort of Bigfoot creature. The podcast Monster Talk recently did an episode on Zena, the supposed Russian wild woman, who was supposedly an almas, a sort of Russian Bigfoot. Genetic testing being carried out, it transpired that Zena was merely a woman of African descent, not any sort of ape creature. That episode, I thought, was quite timely, given that the exact same issues came up in Julia's case as well. At this stage, however, enter Theodore Lent, who would come to play a significant role in the story from here on out. How exactly it was that he came into contact with Julia is unclear, though there are theories. In any case, he had by November 1855. Sepulveda and Beach were exhibiting the woman in Baltimore, Maryland, when, as is chronicled in the Baltimore Sun for November 10th, a suit of an extraordinary and novel character was, in, was instituted last evening before Justice Lauder in reference to what is termed a bear woman advertised to exhibit in this city today. From what transpired before the Justice, it appears that she arrived in this city yesterday accompanied by F. Sepulveda, a Mexican, who represents himself as her guardian, having been, as he alleges, appointed so by her foster parents in Mexico. Mr. J.W. Beach, who claims her under a contract with the above-named to exhibit her throughout this country, and two brothers, Theodore and Samuel Lent, who traveled with him. Beach alleges that during the day, the two brothers induced her to depart from the Susquehanna house, where they were stopping and tracing them to the Western Hotel, had warrants issued for their arrest upon the charge of abduction. Officers Birkins and Jordan last evening arrested and took them to the middle station, together with the woman in dispute, where J.R. Quinn Esquire appeared as counsel for Beach, and Milton Whitney Esquire for the brothers Lent. One of them here presented a certificate of marriage with the woman, alleging that they had been married in this city, and claimed her as his lawful wife. This was so naughty a point, that after a conference between the counsel and justice, it was determined to postpone its solution to a future day, and Lent was held in $500 to appear and produce the woman in a further examination. The results of the meeting between Pastrana and Justice Lauder are chronicled in another Baltimore newspaper, the American and Commercial Advertiser, for November 12th. Note that the misnaming of Beach in this article is the newspaper's error. One of the singular specimens of creation in the form of a hairy woman has created quite a contest between the parties having her in charge. It appears that since her arrival to this city, she has been joined in wedlock to a young man named Lent, who disputed the further authority of the agent J.M. Beach. A warrant was issued on Friday evening for the arrest of the alleged, hus the alleged husband and his brother, when a partial examination took place, and the certificate of the marriage was produced, 
the ceremony having taken place on the morning of that day. The right of the husband to the wife could not be doubted, and the magistrate could only hold the husband to bail to produce her when he should demand her presence. She stated on Saturday that she was married and would not give up her husband for anybody. So who exactly was Theodore Lent? He was a native New Yorker, and I somewhat wonder whether that might be where he met Julia, because many of the perform of her performances in that city in 1854 were ar- around his address, and I would guess that he might have met her, met her then. City directories of the time seem to indicate that he had several different occupations, from plumber to ink manufacturer to real estate agent. There was also a Theodore Lent who was apparently quite a prominent auctioneer. I'm not sure if this is the same one or not. Interestingly, according to the 1850 census, Samuel Lent was fully 25 years older than Theodore, implying that he may have actually been the father rather than a brother. Lent seems to have also been a habitual criminal. On September 1st, 1848, he was in court answering to a charge that he had illegally received several hundred dollars from various people who had outstanding bills with a former employer of his. He went to these various customers under the pretense of relaying the money to Theodore Hatfield, who was that former employer. However, he had actually been terminated from Hatfield's employ months before and just pocketed the money. He was later also charged with purchasing an expensive pocket watch from Christian Pfeiffer with an IOU from the same Mr. Hatfield, and he later also sued Elias Hatfield over the contents of a store on Broadway. While a real estate agent in 1852 and 1853, Lent was again on law enforcement's radar. In March 1853, he leased 74 Mercer Street to a woman named Bertha Jaratzik for $450 a year on the condition that she pay $1,000 for the furniture with which the home was provided. She sued on the basis that the furniture was actually only worth $500. A follow-up revealed that Jaratzik had been running a brothel on the promise, on the premises, and that the true owner of the property, D.H. Haight, had previously leased the house to Theodore Lent himself, who turned around and leased it in turn to Jaratzik. In June, he was again accused of a nearly identical offense. A few days ago, Mr. James H. Chagone, artist, residing at number 372 4th Street, called upon Justice Stewart, accompanied by several of his neighbors, who complained that a woman named Sarah Burke, residing in house number 371, kept a disorderly house and a common resort for the purposes of prostitution. The magistrate issued his warrant, and Sarah Burke was arrested and placed under bonds to to answer the charge. When the affair was laid before the grand inquest of the general sessions, they ascertained that one Theodore Lent of number 45 Broadway had leased the said house in 4th Street to Sarah Burke, well knowing at the time, as is alleged, that the said Sarah intended to keep a disreputable house. An indictment was found by the grand grand jury against Mr. Lent, who was arrested yesterday by officers Spicer and Campbell. So clearly, Lent was a piece of work. After the wedding, Sepulveda and Beach exit the story. Julia performed several times in Baltimore, directly following the marriage. She also attended a military ball, or, well, may have, because the story is from the promotional brochure, so 
confused. At first, Miss Julia seemed indisposed to accept the proffered civility, on account whether of diffidence or because she imagined that the ladies and gentlemen who would be in attendance would make of her an object for their merriment. These objections being overcome, she finally consented to attend the festival. She accordingly dressed herself in a most magnificent manner for the occasion. Her attire, or costume, consisted of a blue dress trimmed with silver lace, white kid gloves, black satin slippers, bracelets, watch, and a splendid set of jewelry, including a diamond ring which has just, which has just been made a present to her. Although somewhat timid or bashful upon entering the ballroom, she soon recovered her self-possession and passed the evening as graceful as if she had been accustomed to scenes of fashion and gaiety all her life, making herself agreeable to all the joyous company. Indeed, had her face been screened from observation, no one would have discovered anything extraordinary in her behavior or general appearance, save that her handsome dress alone might naturally have rendered her the cynosure of all eyes, particularly among the lovely bells on the mon of the monumental city. Over the next few months, she performed in Washington, D.C., in the South. That summer, there were several dates in upstate New York, and even a few in Canada. Over the next year, she toured extensively throughout Pennsylvania and Illinois. On May 17, 1857, she performed in Philadelphia. This proved to be her last performance in the United States. Following this was a tour of England, in which she performed mainly in London, Newcastle, and Liverpool. The London Evening Standard wrote of her, The entertainment, so far as Mr. Lent's hospitality was concerned, was agreeable enough, and so far as Miss Julia Pastrana was concerned, it was curious and remarkable enough for the most blasé sightseer. We give Mr. Lent credit for introducing this wonderful being to the world in a perfectly legitimate way. He has eschewed those Barnum Dodges we beg the reader's pardon, but we can find no other equally expressive word, which lead either to undue expectation and disappointment, or to suspicion and neglect. And he has been content simply to invite the public to visit the extraordinary woman to whom he introduces them, without any claptrap or exaggeration. And truly, Miss Julia Pastrana is a young lady who, whose acquaintance it is at least desirable that the ethnologist and physiologist should make. None but herself can be her parallel. No young lady in the United Kingdom can boast of such attractions, and indeed Miss Julia is in the whole world beyond compare. Seriously, the young woman is a remarkable curiosity, not so horridly repulsive as the imaginative artists of the Postingville School have made her, but yet sufficiently abnormal to create a feeling of sorrow and sadness, which would be the more intense but that the young woman herself seems perfectly happy. During her British appearances, Charles Darwin himself took interest in Pastrana's case, though as far as can be determined, he as far as can be determined, he never personally met her. From England, Lenten Pastrana traveled to Germany. Here she gave several performances in Berlin and possibly in Leipzig. Lent needed to make it clear to German authorities that Julia's performances consisted of singing and dancing as that country had cracked down on so-called freak shows. Prominent German doctors warned against her appearances, however, fearing that through the at-that-time accepted phenomena of maternal impression, 
alluded to earlier, the fetuses of pregnant women would be, could be affected and be born with Julia. When they arrived in Berlin, a man named Edward Jacobson wrote a play called Die Kurierte Meyer, in which a dairyman falls in love with a mysterious woman who always wears a veil. In scenes when the, when the quote-unquote suitor was not on stage, Julia would lift the veil. After several, after several acts, she would unveil herself before the dairyman, who thereafter was cured of his infatuation. The play was shut down by authorities after one performance, however. Shortly after this, Pastrana and Lent performed on several occasions in Vienna. The Viennese press wrote of her, Hereafter, the guardian of the Harry Julia made the miss talk and sing in English and dance Scottish. The tone of the miss is not too unharmonic, but her dance, especially concerning the movements of her small feet, is truly gracious. She, drink, she danced the Scottish just like Lydia Thompson, and when you drew a mental line from the brunette non-beauty to the blonde curly head of Miss Lydia, it offered a striking contrast. At the end, after the audience had become used to the interesting Mexican, she was led around the colonnade and balustrade for closer view and appraisal, during which she conversed with the audience in a, ra in a rather affable way, which caused an elderly Viennese gentleman to call out, she is a rather agreeable creature. It was during this time that Theodore Lent became more controlling, at least more obviously so. As alluded to in the quote above, he began to forbid her from performing in Spanish. He coached Julia's responses during interviews, and he began to forbid her from leaving their apartments during the day, for fear that it would negatively impact the profit margin. Much of their movements after Vienna are comparatively unknown. It is believed, it's believed she performed several times in Poland, and it's known for certain that they moved on eventually to Russia, because it was in Moscow in 1859 that it was discovered that Julia was pregnant. A difficult childbirth was feared due to her small stature. Several Russian surgeons, led by a Dr. Trettenbacher, attended her in March 1860 when she finally gave birth. The baby born with the same medical conditions she herself was afflicted with, died shortly after birth, and about five days later, Julia herself died as well. It is often romanticized and said that she died of a broken heart, but in actuality, it was the complications of childbirth feared from the outset that killed her. Normally, you'd think the story would end there, but you'd be wrong. Supposedly, her last words were, I die happy. I know I have been loved for myself, but, given what took place after that, I think it's safe to say that if those truly were her last words, she was sadly mistaken. Theodore Lent decided that, in order to make more money, he would sell the corpses of Julia Pastrana and her unnamed baby to a Professor Sokolov of Moscow University for the equivalent, at the time, of 500 pounds. Sokolov embalmed the bodies at his anatomical institute. Frank Buckland, a follower of many of Pastrana's London exhibitions, felt that there was great rascality connected with the whole business. The mummified remains were displayed in the museum of the university, and once Lent saw the condition of the bodies, he purchased them back from Sokolov for the equivalent of a further 800 pounds. By February 1862, Lent was exhibiting the bodies in London as the embalmed female nondescript, 
the aforementioned Frank Buckland examined the mummies, saying of them that the figure was dressed in the ordinary exhibition costume used in life and placed erect on the table. The limbs were by no means shrunken or contracted. The arms, chest, etc., retaining their former roundness and well-formed appearance. The face was marvelous, exactly like an exceedingly good portrait in wax, but it was not formed in wax. The closest examination convinced me that it was the true skin, prepared in some wonderful way, the huge deformed lips and the squat nose remaining exactly as in life, and the beard and luxuriant growth of soft black hair on and about the face were in no respect changed from their former appearance. After this, the, mum the mummies were taken on a tour of Sweden in 1864, and thence into Germany. At some point, a wax copy of the mummies were made, allowing for even more exhibitions. While in Germany, Carlsbad to be precise, Theodore Lent came across a young woman named Marie Bartels, who appeared to have a similar condition as to Julia Pastrana. An examination of pictures of Bartels, in my opinion, makes that unlikely. She appears to have been afflicted with hirsutism, and was thus a more traditional bearded lady, rather than displaying the, the array of conditions that Julia did. Lent quickly married Bartels in turn, forbade her from shaving her beard, and began exhibiting her under the name Zenora Pastrana, claiming that she was Julia's sister. Soon, he had moved on from exhibiting Julia's mummy and leased it to the Prouscher Volksmuseum in Vienna. There seems to have been considerable confusion in the press about the, the two Pastranas, and oftentimes they would call Zenoria, Zenora, Julia. To what extent Lent may have been doing this on his own is un unknown. I wouldn't necessarily rule it out, because once he and Bartels retired from show business in the 1880s to run a wax museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, he seems to have relatively quickly gone insane. One night in 1884, he was found on a bridge in St. Petersburg, dancing around, tearing up money, and tossing it into the Neva River. In 1888, Zenora passed back through Vienna, picking up the mummies, and in November of that year, she exhibited herself, along with the mummies, in Munich, possibly to aid in dispelling the rumors that she was Julia. The next year, she gave the mummies to a Munich showman named J.B. Gossner, and then she herself remarried and was not heard of again. Gossner showed the mummies around Munich for a number of years, selling them in Vienna in 1895. In 1921, they were purchased by a Norwegian showman named Hawken Jägerlund. During World War II, his son Hans managed to take the mummies on a tour of Sweden. Then. In 1953, the Jaeger-Lund co collection was taken from public view and stored in a warehouse in Oslo. The mummy was again exhibited in Norway in the early 1970s, having by this time deteriorated to an alarming extent. The preservation of the bodies that Sokolov had managed in 1860 clearly hadn't stood the test of time. The mummies were rented out after that, appearing in Denmark and even reappearing in the United States in 1972. The next year, it was again exhibited in Sweden. Then, in 1976, Hans Jägerlund died, and his son declined to exhibit the mummies. 
that year, there was a break-in at the Jägerlund property, and during this, the child's mummy was destroyed. During another break-in in 1979, the mummy of Julia disappeared. It was found after several years, in 1990, in the basement of an Oslo hospital. In the ensuing years, Julia Pastrana's mummy had lost an arm, as well as all its clothing, except for the boots. It was at this time, also, that Jan Bondesen saw it. The mummy remained here in this basement for several more years. She was eventually moved to the Institute of Basic Medical Science in Oslo in 1997. Here the mummy was being kept when Laura Anderson Barbata, a Mexican-born artist who at the time was working in Oslo, sent a series of petitions to the Institute to send Julia Pastrana's body back to Mexico for burial in 2005. While the Institute declined at first, in 2008, the National Committee for the Evaluation of Research on Human Remains agreed that it seems quite unlikely that Julia Pastrana would have wanted her body to remain a specimen in an anatomical collection. With this declaration, the governor of Sinaloa, as well as the Mexican ambassador, got involved and petitions were launched through more official channels. Finally, in February 2013, the mummy was sent back to Mexico and was reburied in a cemetery in Sinaloa de Leyva. And so, nearly 160 years after she left Mexico, Julia Pastrana finally returned home. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so... Until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.